Welcome to Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. Today, I'm talking with Gus Peterson about comic book characters who become bigger than their companies and creators, taking on a life of their own as symbols for a variety of movements and cultural shifts. Gus is a self-described comic book nerd and is currently attending the Qbert School for Comic and Graphic Design. Welcome, Gus. Hey, thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being on. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm Kari Peterson, and Gus is my son. He's my oldest son. And um, I think part of what inspired this show today is last week, Jill Lenhard, the high school English teacher, had her senior class in for their um, research projects. And I will never forget Gus's senior research project um, because that was, and if there's any parents out there listening who have seniors in Jill's class this year, when your senior gets ready to give their verbal presentation of their research project, I hope you will attend. I didn't know that that was available to me. I found out just at the last minute and my mother and I attended Gus's um, presentation, which he did propaganda in the comics through the ages. And he started with the Great Depression and went through the current yep. age. And I am so glad that I went to that presentation because I got to see my son presenting his passion. And I really understood in that moment what he needed to do with his life and his skills and it wasn't in the fishing industry and um, that it, it wasn't this goofy comic book thing, you know, that um, it was really important. And in that very same thought, it was Jim Ingle up at the high school who <laughs> had my son in high school reading the news every day. And, um, because of that, Gus was really able to put together the um, what is going on in the world with what is going on in these comics. And, um, and it's a fabulous thing. And as a mom, you know, I'm listening to Batman and Spider-Man and all of Gus's um, different comic book stuff that he's chattering to me about. And then he'll say something so profound and I'll be like, hold, hold on, say that again. What did you just say? And he's just blowing my socks off. And so this is one of the things, this show came out of a conversation that Gus and I had been having and we were in the kitchen and, uh, and, and I had asked him a question about a character and then he was telling me about it and I had to have one of those backup moments and tell me that again. So that's, that's where this particular show came from. And uh, anyway, that's my two cents. And uh, so Gus, when we were talking about this, Gus wanted to start, he thought a good jumping off place would be V for, Ven for Vendetta by Alan Moore, who is the same person who wrote Watchmen. Yes. Yes. Okay. So tell us about what it is in V for Vendetta 
that has taken on a life of its own that's bigger than the company and the creator, Alan Moore. Well, the book itself, uh, being from Alan Moore, is very counterculture in nature. Um, Alan Moore himself is a British man who uh, came over to the States to write comics. He was very working class. He uh, had a punk band. He was very much a part of that movement, which was the big counterculture movement of uh, Britain in the time, which was owned by Margaret Thatcher. And when he wrote V for Vendetta, it was really about um, rising up against uh, corrupt governments and using symbolism and art to do so. Uh, If you've seen the movie or you've read the book, you know that V has a large collection of art in his lair, uh, including things like banned movies, television shows, uh, music, literature, uh, stuff that the government generally doesn't want um, the general population to get their hands on, uh, V for Vendetta being a very dystopian book. And many people have identified with the uh, sort of political linings of V and adopted him into a symbol. Uh, Everything from the conspiracy group QAnon to just regular anarchists have kind of taken him on uh, much of the bewilderment of the original creator of uh, V considering that every time we buy a Guy Fox mask, Warner brothers gets a little bit of royalty money. So you were telling me this We I had to go look up this mask online and, and you told me to, what was it you told me to Google the, just V for Vendetta mask. Yeah. You're and instantly I And I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen that mask before. And it's very recognizable. Yeah. Like everything from like right, more like far right groups like QAnon to Antifa have kind of adopted it uh, over the years. And, and when I asked, I said, okay, so what was Alan Moore's reaction to this? And I loved your answer. It was about the capitalism. Yeah, Alan Moore is an anarchist. <laughs> and so is V or Guy Fox in the comic book. Yeah. But like you said, every time this, um, the symbol of this mask has become merchandise. Yeah, it's patches, it's pins, it's actual physical masks, Halloween costumes. And it's all owned by Warner Brothers. So it's all capitalism and it's everything that the main character is against and that the people who have taken on the symbol are against. Yeah. But then that's what it has become. Yeah. Ironically enough. The second one you wanted to talk about was Tyler Durden from Fight Club. That's a pretty big one because it's just, it's been taken on by uh so many people and fight club itself didn't originally start out as a comic book originally it was just a novel um however they re- uh the creator published a sequel which is a uh comic book so i guess it ties in 
And they made the book into a movie. Yes. Before they wrote the sequel. Yeah. Um, and in the sequel to the book, the movie exists. So the movie is in the universe of the book, um, starring Edward Norton and uh, Brad Pitt. And the author ended up writing himself into the sequel to the story. And the reason he did that was because he was very frustrated with the way that people were interpreting the movie. Um, And how were people interpreting the movie? The movie is and the book are both kind of designed in a way where over the course of the book, Tyler offers a very um, alluring idea of anti-authoritarianism, counterculture, lifestyle, and then slowly makes that into his own ideology and uh, conformity. Um, He starts out with running an underground fight club inside a bar where if you're, you know, some like a man who's frustrated with the way that they're placed in the world, you can go and, you know, beat up another person for however long and, you know, spend some time and then you're on your way. Uh, But by the end of the book and the movie, uh, Tyler's basically turned it into a cult where everyone dresses the same. Everyone looks the same. Everyone's, pretty much homogenized doing the same jobs in rotation uh working for Tyler which is what he was against yeah the- and in the sequel to the book uh Chuck Palnick the writer actually wrote a scene where he's in his house um with a bunch of his friends and a group of uh, Fight Club fans come to his house with uh, copies of Fight Club 2 in their hands, angrily uh, yelling and wondering with quotes from the movie and the book tattooed all over their body, yelling at him for uh, gutting the original. And he has to come out and explain to him what his original intent was with the book and the movie. And one of them just says, there was a movie? (laughs) <laughs> Which is based off of quite a few real experiences he's had. There was a book, they said. Yeah, there yeah, there was a book. So why are fans so disenchanted with the second book? Movie fans. Why are movie fans so disenchanted with the second book? Because Tyler is just portrayed as a straight up villain in that one. There is no if and or and buts about it. He is the antagonist of that book. Um in the in the original movie, I guess this is kind of a spoiler. In the movie, in the book, he was portrayed as a split personality to the main character. Mm-hmm. And in the book, he's it's revealed that he's been a split personality for many dictators and just horrible people. Everyone from Adolf Hitler to Genghis Khan, <laughs> and uh, a lot of people take issue with that. Okay. So do you think that the author in doing that kind of reined in the perception of who Tyler Durden, this fictional character, is? Well, he actually does address it in the 
book, uh, I believe the quote, this might not be exactly it, but he says, you can't remove Santa Claus from the cultural zeitgeist. Which I think is pretty profound when talking about that character in particular. Okay. Now, I want you to touch a little bit on this. We were talking, and the author, he wanted to create, you were talking about um, the sisterhood of the traveling pants. Yes. Uh, Basically, he saw books like the sisterhood of the traveling pants as books about female bonding experiences, and he noticed that there wasn't anything like that for men. So in creating Fight Club, he was hoping to create the first book about male bonding experiences um but because it gets so out of control in the context of the book and it spins off and basically becomes a cult it's not really seen as a good thing but because so many people have uh seen the movie or read the book and they want to have similar experiences they'll go out and do things very similar to fight club so, so fans have done that in the name of a fight club, yeah, a fight club, and and those are very, you know, fringe movements, but yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and I think that that's an important point when we were talking about that because um, that plays a big role in the next one we're going to talk about. But this idea of male identity and male bonding. If you are just joining us, this is Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson. Today I'm talking with my oldest son, Gus Peterson, about comic book characters who become bigger than their companies and creators, taking on a life of their own as symbols for a variety of movements and cultural shifts. Gus is a self-described comic book nerd and is currently attending the Kubert School for Comic and Graphic Design. Now back to our conversation. The next character that Gus and I chose to talk about is the Punisher. Punisher logo is the skull. Yeah, you've definitely seen it before. Yeah, and um, if you Google it, you'll, 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 you'll know it because you've seen it. So this is where Gus and I's conversation um, started was with Punisher because I had seen this logo around all over and I was seeing it a lot in the protests and, um, and I knew that it was used by police and military. And I, and so I had asked him, Gus, what are the characteristics of the character, the Punisher? So can you tell us what are the characteristics of that actual character? the fictional character. The best way I can think to explain the Punisher to someone who has no exposure to the character whatsoever is just imagine Batman, take away the mask, slap a skull on his chest, take away the cape, give him a bunch of guns and have him kill people. That's the basic gist of it. Okay. Um, And so you told me also that Punisher was originally um, a villain yeah yeah he uh made his first debut in a uh issue of spider-man uh written by a uh at the time 17 year old gary conway okay 
so tell us a little bit about um, the rise of Punisher. There, there was a there was an actual book and a story, and which was um, made into a movie on a real person. A biography. And this is where this is one of the things that began to give rise to the Punisher logo. Can you tell us about the history of that? Yes. Uh, so Chris Kyle, um, American Sniper, he was a fan of the Punisher character. Uh, I believe from the movies, uh, probably Punisher Warzone would be my best guess. Um, and he decided to adopt the Punisher skull into his uh, unit as their logo. So that was what they put on all their tanks and their guns and their clothing. And they would spray paint it on the side of walls, helmets, just everything. And then it got picked up by more people in the American culture. Yeah, fringe groups. And groups. Um, it's mostly associated with white supremacy and um, the far right. Is that a fair assessment? That's, yeah. I mean, it's, that's kind of what it's been most associated with recently. Gary Conway has kind of gone out and tried to do damage control by creating um, more left-leaning Punisher merchandise, but it hasn't caught on quite as much. Um, yeah. In this conversation, Gus and I were having... I. I was saying, I, I think that some people really don't understand the meaning of, of who this character is. Because this character is judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is um, Garth Ennis, who wrote Punisher Max, um, also the creator of The Boys, uh, he is a British writer. Uh, he's from Britain. And the thing that he wrote Punisher Max, which is considered the best Punisher story um, by a lot of Punisher fans. And the reason he liked the character so much was because the character didn't feel like an American superhero. He felt like a British superhero who are mostly satirical. And so the most popular sort of interpretation of the Punisher in the cultural zeitgeist is the almost satirical take on a superhero that a lot of Americans don't seem to have the full context of. Yeah. And you had recently sent me an interesting article about um, the, and in there they talked about the history of, of this. And um, they had talked about the merchandise. Yeah. The kind of the scary thing about this is that Punisher has become cool. They market him the same way they market Spider-Man or Captain America or any of their other superheroes, which is uh, just make merchandise out of everything and anything that we can. Um, so people are buying it because it's cool. And they yeah. don't understand what group is using using it and this co-opting it. Logo. Yeah, co-opting yeah. Because they certainly don't have permission. Because how does, um, I have it written down here, the author, you can Gary Conway. It. Gary Conway, what is, how does he feel about the use of his, his character by... Should I just read the quote? If you want to, or you can summarize it. 
So what Gus is about to read is from sci-fi.com, Sci-Fi Wire. It's an article written by Dana Force, um, dated January 8th, 2019, and it's an interview with the author of Punisher, Jerry Conway, and this is a direct quote from Jerry Conway. He was responding to the question, what are your thoughts on the Punisher symbol being co-opted by police or the military? Uh, I've talked about uh, this in other interviews. To me, it's disturbing whenever I see authority figures embracing the Punisher iconography because the Punisher represents a failure of the justice system. He's supposed to indicate the collapse of societal moral authority and the reality some people can depend on. Institutions like the police and the military to act in a just and capable way. So basically what he's saying there is that the Punisher isn't supposed to be the good guy. He's an anti-hero who represents lawlessness. Yeah. And, and in the perfect world or perfect Marvel universe, I guess, uh, the Punisher wouldn't exist because he wouldn't have any need to, but... So why is that? In the perfect Marvel universe, he wouldn't exist? Well, because there'd, there'd be no villains. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there'd, there'd be no evil. Um, but the Punisher has just kind of become... He, he really picked up traction after he was in Daredevil, where he was pretty much an antagonist. He was pretty much just a villain to Daredevil because Daredevil is a very strict uh, Catholic hero who follows a very strict moral and ethic-based uh, code. You know, you have the Punisher, someone who will just shoot someone in a second and not think twice about it. Um, but the Punisher does have a moral code of his own. It's just yeah. not necessarily the moral code you would want your children believing yeah it's very different um compared to most traditional superheroes or even most like um military-based uh pop culture phenomenon like for example gi joe you know all the joes are boy scouts compared to him (laughs) yeah and the article you shared with me we will put that up on um um the article gus shared with me after I asked him questions about the Punisher logo was actually an article written in comic form. And it, it talks about the history of its use. And, um, and he also talks about GI Joe in there because he is a very big GI Joe fan and his, and the the author of the article was um, his father was in the military too. So he had, he had talked extensively with his father about the use of this also, which was really interesting. Um, so the last thing um, we wanted to talk about today was kind of, we wanted to kind of bring it full circle um, back to Calvin and Hobbes and Bill Watterson and um, Image Comics. And these are important because um, the characters we've talked about today are owned by Big corporations. Yeah. Warner Brothers and Fox. So tell us a little bit about that. See, um, this was another lesson I learned from Gus. Um, When you go to work 
or DC or Marvel, what happens to your work as a comic book artist? What happens to your work? They own it. They own everything you create outright. Um, every, every character that you create for Marvel, that is considered commissioned work. So no matter, no matter how original your character is, if you drew it and you put it in a Marvel book, it's Marvel's. Um, the same goes with uh, DC. I think the big difference is DC is a little bit better about paying royalties out to the creators. So you still can uh, make money off of your creations if you work for DC. But Marvel's a bit more strict about that. And it's led to a lot of severed relationships. And also when you work for them and you, if you create a really cool character like Spider-Man <laughs> and... Um, and then it's taken over by the company and then writers come in after you take that character wherever. Yeah. Spider-Man has easily had hundreds of of writers over the years. And so Bill Watterson, he didn't work for any of those. So Bill Watterson is, for those of you who don't know, is the author of Calvin and Hobbes, which is a very timeless comic. Comic strip. Comic strip and very popular has staying power, but he was published in newspapers. Yeah. Newspapers are a bit different. You get much more creative ownership over your characters when you work in uh, newspapers. Um, However, a lot of um, strip owners will hire what's called a ghost artist and a ghost writer. Not all. Uh, There are still some that don't do this, but uh, a good example is like Jim Davis, the creator of Garfield. If you read a, if you pick up a newspaper tomorrow and you read a Garfield strip, that is not drawn or written by Jim Davis. That is someone else. He hasn't drawn or written a Garfield strip in a very long time. It's still a signature at the corner because he still created the character, but and the artist and the writers are still getting paid. But it's it's commission work. Bill basically drew and wrote every single Calvin and Hobbes strip and refused to merchandise it. So he has full ownership over everything Calvin and Hobbes. And you were telling me he even turned Steven Spielberg down for making a Calvin Hobbes movie. Yeah, because Warner Brothers came to him. I think at some point 20th Century Fox came to him and were like, hey, we want to make a movie with these characters. And he just said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so Calvin and Hobbes is beloved by many, many, many people. I know there was a long time ago, there was a bunch of decals and you might still see some of them around town of Calvin doing naughty things that he shouldn't be doing. And and some of the decals are offensive, but those are all pirated. Yeah. Because he never, he has never given the okay to, to, produce merchandise for his characters yeah well that's kind of the interesting thing about calvin hobbs is uh because he has um refused to merchandise if you go online and you just type in like calvin and hobbs into youtube you find so many fan films and you can find like pieces of fan art sculptures action figures things that people fans have made uh based off of calvin and hobbs um the, the amount of like Calvin and Hobbes fan works uh, out there is really kind of staggering. Yeah. Well, 
And the last thing, we're running out of time here, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about Image Comics and how it was made. Yeah, so Image was it was a bunch of Marvel uh, artists who were sick of having their work basically exploited because they were creating characters like Venom and Gambit and uh, Deadpool, Cable, just to name a few, who were being marketed like crazy by Marvel in the 90s but they weren't receiving any royalty money from it. Uh, So they basically jumped ship and went to create their own publishing studio, uh, which is Image Comics, which was kind of a mess in the 90s, I'm not going to lie. But it's really come around and has uh, a second wind in more recent times with works like The Walking Dead. And uh, they have a new show uh, coming out called uh, Invincible, which is on Amazon Prime. They've become a hub for creator-owned content uh, that the creators own everything outright. And so they can make, they can merchandise it as they see fit. So if they decide they want to make a TV show or an action figure line based off of their character, they get the royalty money from that. And it's also, it's not a corporate decision. It becomes a creator decision as in yeah. created that character out of their imagination it's intellectual property rights yeah you don't have to merchandise your character if you publish under image but you can the option is there yeah well thank you for sharing this knowledge with us i'm always kind of fascinated by the things i learned from talking to you um i really appreciate it and um if you want to if you're interested in looking into any of the things we've talked about here We'll have some links in the description to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. This has been Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and Petersburg Public Library. Today's show will be archived as a podcast on the library's website at www.psglib.org. There will also be a link to the library's website at kfsk.org. Any resources discussed during the show will be listed in the podcast description. Thank you to KFSK and the Friends of Petersburg Libraries for making today's show possible. And thank you, Gus. You're welcome.